Well, good morning. Grab your copy of God's Word and turn to the First uh, Peter chapter 1. This morning I want us to consider a verse out of that. Let me read it for us. I'm reading in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 13. Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. In 1943, at the beginning of 1943, the Japanese have occupied a significant portion of China. And the Japanese decide it would benefit them to round up uh, all of the Westerners in China that are part of the Allied Powers. So that would be Americans, uh, British, Australians, some other European countries. So the Japanese round up about 2,000 Westerners and they transport them to Wixian, China and they put them in what became known as the Shantung Compound. It's actually the title of one of my favorite books, Shantung Compound. These Westerners, they were prisoners. There were armed Japanese soldiers guarding them throughout their internment. They were uh, given rations, and as time went on, they became meager rations. And they, they were, however, allowed to govern themselves. Uh, they would actually have an election about every six months, and uh, there would be a leadership council, and they would assign jobs, and they... Um, they had to cook and clean their own food and, and organize the camp. But all of these Westerners that were imprisoned in this camp, they all placed their hope upon one thing, and that was being freed by the Allied powers. Now fast forward about two and a half years, and we come to August of 1945. On August 15, 1945, the Japanese announce their surrender. The next day, on August 16, 1945, word of the Japanese surrender has been smuggled into Shantung compound. And all of these prisoners are, are just electrified by this information. But there's a hesitancy, too. Is this real? Is this true? We have staked all our hope on being freed by the Allies. The very next day, August 17, 1945, a plane is spotted far off in the distance, but a low-flying plane. So word spreads in the camp, and most of them come outside of the buildings. They're in the courtyard. And as the plane continues to uh, fly closer and closer, they, they discover that they can, they can identify the insignia on the plane and they realize that this is a, an, an, an American plane. The, the whole camp begins to erupt. They're waving their arms. There's dancing around in the courtyard. Their, their excitement level has just gone through the roof. The plane flies right by Shantung compound, but then begins to circle and comes back around. And then, lo and behold, these prisoners see seven paratroopers come out of this plane. 
the, the hope that they have been living on for the past two and a half years is now coming to fruition to such a degree that the entire population of the camp immediately begins marching toward the front gate. Now at the front gate are armed Japanese soldiers. And these armed Japanese soldiers point their rifles at the prisoners. But they don't miss a beat. They continue marching and walking right past the Japanese guards, out the front gate, and they meet these seven U.S. paratroopers in a nearby cornfield. Hope. We all need hope. Now, we're not prisoners. Uh, We don't have meager rations. But we can still relate to these people that were imprisoned in Shantung compound. We understand that not all things are as they ought to be in life. We understand and we hope, we have belief that at some point all things will be made right. We all need hope. We all have to have hope in something. Peter, in this letter, is writing to uh, Christians and Christians that are scattered into various places. If you look in verse 1 of chapter 1, we read, To those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. Now, He's writing to elect exiles, to believers, to those people who are trusting in the death of Christ on the cross to forgive them for their offense, their sin against God. He's writing to believers, but these believers happen to be scattered in several different Roman provinces. Geographically, that's what we call Turkey today. And he's writing to a group of believers that much like we would experience, They know that not everything in life is right. Jump down to verse 6 and look at what he says. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. That, That word that's translated by the English term trials is a pretty broad term. It certainly could include persecution, although it's not a specific word for persecution, But I think what what Peter is recognizing is that for all believers, as we are living out our faith in this world, we understand that not all things are as they should be yet. There are difficulties, there are um, uh, injustices, there are problems, there is still death. So Peter is writing to a group of believers that, that, like us, need hope. They need to know that this is not how things are always going to be. Now, in, uh, in this section of 1 Peter that we're considering, in verse 13 and following, there's actually three commands that Peter lays out. This morning, I simply want us to think very, very thoroughly about the first command. But to do that, we need to start with the first word of verse 13, the therefore. That directs us back to something earlier in the chapter. 
from verse 3 through verse 12, Peter lays out certain truths that are realities for all believers. And in essence, what he's saying by the time we get to verse 13, to this therefore, he's saying, because these things are true, now go do this. Now, notice several of the things that he identifies as truths. Uh, Look at the second half of verse 3. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. We've been saved through Christ. He's reminding the believers, this is true for you. But notice what happens in verse 4. We're not just saved, but we're saved to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. Now, I love this one in verse 5. I don't know if we, if we realize this about ourselves. So we're saved by Christ. We are saved to an inheritance. But look at what it says in verse 5. Who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. My brother and my sister in Christ, did you realize that you right now are being guarded through faith by God's power? Did you realize that? Did you know that's true for you? And as a result of these truths, Peter then comes to verse 13 and he lays out a command for us. So what exactly is this command? I would sum it up in this one phrase. Our hope, now hope is simply the belief that things will be set right. Our hope is to be attached completely to the return of Jesus Christ. Look at the the latter half of verse 13. We see that. Set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Now let's take a moment and understand these, these phrases. What is the revelation of Jesus Christ? It is the revealing of Jesus Christ. It is the disclosure of Jesus Christ. Uh, we, we just sang uh, in that offertory, those, those words were fabulous. We, we sang, hallelujah, our king's alive. Yes, he is. And right now, he is seated at the right hand of God the Father, and he is interceding for us. And he has promised us and said to us, I will come again. Jesus will return to earth That is what the revelation of Jesus Christ is referring. So then then we've got this phrase, the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. What is this grace that will be brought to you? I stand before you today, I am a man who is a Christian. I have completely trusted in Christ's death on the cross to pay for, to settle my account with God, whom I have offended, I have sinned against horribly. I'm a Christian. I stand before you here. I have received grace from God that he has provided for me in Christ. And I'm also a man who stands here before you today who has to fight sin. I am a man who is tempted I am a man who 
uh, when some things don't go my way, I get angry at somebody because they didn't do what I wanted, and then I find myself beginning to develop a resentment against them. So I have received grace, and yet right now I still find myself battling and fighting sin. But the grace that will be brought to me at the revelation of Jesus Christ is that fight with sin is done. I will no longer sin. Is that not a fabulous reality and thought? We think about the energy and the amount of time that we spend fighting and battling and suffering under sin. And there comes a point at the revelation of Christ when the grace that he brings at that point means that it's all over, it's all done, we are back to how God intended and designed us to be. That is not today, but that is at the revelation of Jesus Christ. That's what he's referencing there. It is a, it is a point and a time where Christ will return and fulfill all the promises that he has said he would there. So the reality that we are to attach our hope to fully is the return of Christ and the fulfillment of all of his promises and work for us at that point. Now, all that was introduction. Now what I really want to do is I want to dig out three thoughts, three ideas that are, are, are all found in this text that, that deal with this idea, this, this command of set your hope. Okay, so I want to ask the question, what does setting our hope to the return of Jesus, what does it actually mean? I have an illustration that I think will help us not only understand it, but apply it to our lives, okay? Uh, the illustration has to do with rock climbing. Now, I am not a rock climber. If you are a rock climber, it's an illustration. Don't hold me to lingo correctly and I might get something wrong, but just track with my illustration, okay? A rock climber is going to have a harness attached to them. Attached to that harness, they're going to have a rope, a safety rope, and that safety rope is going to be attached to an anchor. And because there is a safety rope attached to an anchor, if the rock climber falls, they do not fall to their death. They merely fall a short distance, and they are once again able to continue with the climb. Now, the anchor makes the rock climber secure and free to maneuver all over the wall, to, to grasp all sorts of, of handholds and footholds, all these little spots on the rock. Maybe it's a crack in the rock, and I don't really know what you do. Maybe you put your fist in there. Or maybe there's a little tiny lip and you put your fingers on that. Or maybe you got something you put your heel to. The anchor, the safety rope attached to an anchor, secures the rock climber in such a manner that they are completely free to use all sorts of handholds and maneuver around and up the wall and ascend the wall and complete the climb. You see where I'm going with this illustration? Now, what happens if the rock climber decides that one of these tiny little slivers of a lip of a handhold is their anchor? 
well, it's not going to work. They're, they're going to slip off of that and fall and die. It's only when my anchor is attached to something that is secure enough that I can be free to operate and climb the wall. Now let's try and apply this for just a minute. Obviously, our anchor has to be Christ's return. He and He alone can secure us and allow us to be free to maneuver all over the wall, and just in case you haven't caught it, the wall is living out our lives, okay? Um, to move all around the wall using all sorts of handholds and footholds and ascend the wall. So what would some of these handholds or footholds be? Well, let me give you some examples of this. I think a great handhold would be politics. I hope that you're engaged in politics. I hope that you're using a hand and you're holding on to politics. I hope you're aware of legislation. I hope that you're aware of who's running for what. I, I hope you're engaged and that you're, you're exercising your vote and allowing your, your faith in Christ to influence how you vote. But politics is a handhold, period. It's not an anchor. It cannot secure you. Politics cannot allow you to be free to move all around the wall. It's only a handhold. Our anchor is Christ and His return. Let me give you another example of a great handhold. Um, marriage. I'm married. Uh, this August I will have been married for 25 years. I don't even just love my wife, I like her. I get excited when I get to speak with her and be around her. What a gift from God. Um, my marriage, it, it's a good marriage. I like my marriage. Marriage is a great handhold. It's not an anchor. My marriage can never bear the weight of securing me and can never bear the weight of me attaching my beliefs that all things will be made right. Another human being cannot possibly do that for us. How about children? I've got some children. They're great and terrible all at the same time. <laughs> I love my daughters. Two of them are adults, and the last one will be soon. They get better as they get adults, you know. Um, my children are a great handhold. I've loved the role of being a father. I love my relationship with them. Children are never intended to be an anchor. How about, how about your work? I hope you enjoy your work. I hope you, you serve in your work as if you're serving Christ himself. It's not an anchor, it's a handhold. Your finances. I hope you've got great finances. I hope your financial house is in order. Um, I hope you, you look at your finances and go, wow, thank you, Father. Let me serve you with them. Finances are a handhold. They're not an anchor. They cannot secure us and so allow us to be free. Christ and Christ alone has that role. That is what Peter is driving home here to these believers. Set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you 
at the revelation of Jesus Christ. It is the return of our, of our Lord Jesus that is the only thing that can be an anchor that can secure us and thereby free us to, lead, to, to, to live life in such a manner that he is glorified and pleased. So ask yourself, evaluate, what have I set my hope to? Now, there's two other ideas that are tied up here in this verse. Um, there's actually one verb, and we've just looked at it. It's translated by the phrase, set your hope. But there's two participles. A participle is simply a uh, verbal adjective. It, it modifies a verb. In essence, it tells you, how do I go about doing this verb? So there's two other participles here that tell us, how are we to set our hope? I want us to look at those and consider those. One of them involves doing something, and the other involves removing something. So, let's look at the first one. Again, verse 13. Therefore, because all these things are true about you, believer, preparing your minds for action. Now, you may be reading out of the King James Version, and it uses different English to translate that. It'll say, gird up the loins of your mind. Now, it's basically a word picture. Peter is bringing us a word picture. Let me explain it, and I think we can understand what we're being, what we're being charged with here. Men in this day and age would wear long robes, okay? And if they were going to get ready to work and do something, they would gird up their loins. They would prepare for activity, they would reach down, they would pull up the robe and pull it up to where their legs would be free and movable and they would tuck the robes in their waistband. So they have now prepared their clothing for activity. We are charged to prepare our minds. So what is, what is Peter, what, 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 what picture is Peter giving us? He's basically saying, you, my fellow believer, in order to set your hope on the return of Christ, you need to prepare your mind. You need to know certain things. You need to study doctrine. God has granted us, he has revealed to us truth about ourselves in this world and granted us knowledge through his word about how everything is operating. It is imperative, my brother and my sister in Christ, that you have prepared your mind, that you have studied doctrine, that you have renewed your thinking so that it is in line with what God has said is true and real so that you can make decisions and decipher and understand circumstances around you according to what God has said is true and real. Now, I am going to pastorally, which means lovingly, step on our toes as we think about what this means. In our modern world today, there is an attitude and a perspective that basically says, I don't read. God has chosen and seen fit to reveal His truth to us through written word. For some people, reading comes easy. For others, it's a struggle. Okay, if it's a struggle God's given you, okay. 
You still need to read. We need to be people that are preparing our minds. We need to be people that are studying doctrine. Now, there's a myriad of ways to do that. Uh, man cake, classes, small groups, there's all sorts of things around here. But we are such a wealthy people. It amazes me. When I travel the globe, uh, other pastors I encounter will show me their library. I guarantee you every single person in this room has a library probably ten times the size of the library of most pastors on the planet. But are we reading and studying and preparing our minds? Now, I want to I speak man-to-man for just a minute. I want to speak father-to-father for just a minute and apply something. We are called, I am called, to be the head of my household. Now, that does not mean that I make all the decisions. I would be an idiot if I made all the decisions. My wife is highly intelligent. Um, I, would, I would really, I'd be stupid if I tried to say I'm making all the decisions. We'd go astray. But I, as a husband and a father, I believe part or a significant part of my role as the head of my household is that God has granted the men slightly more power to set the tone in a home. My wife and my children play off my tone. If my household is a grumpy, frumpy, non-grace-oriented house, I need to look my eyes in the mirror and say, what am I doing? But one of the things that can happen is if I, as a man, will study doctrine, will prepare my mind, then that's going to begin to infuse everything that I do and how I raise my children and how I define the world for them. So here's one of the things I want to challenge you with. There's multiple, multiple opportunities and resources like this. Men, and it's not just men, but anybody. Are you studying doctrine? This is by Wayne Grudem, 20 basics every Christian should know. Each chapter is four or five pages. I want to charge you. I want to challenge you. Study these, master these 20 doctrines, and allow that to influence everything that you do. Prepare your mind so that you can set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Okay, the second The second participle here, the second how do we set our mind, is the phrase, and being sober-minded. So we have added, we've, we've, we've done something, we've studied doctrine, now we're going to remove something. Uh, again, Peter is employing a word picture. Now he's, he's employing the idea of someone being drunk. Uh, alcohol is like a hand grenade in the body. It slows down everything. It makes the thinking fuzzy. It makes hand-eye coordination cluttered. What in essence he's saying to us is, be sober-minded. Make sure that there is not anything that is cluttering your thinking or making your thinking fuzzy or slowing your thinking down. So not only prepare your mind, study doctrine, know what God says, so that you can set your hope, but make sure that your mind is uncluttered, that your mind is not fuzzy, that you have sober thinking so that you are able to set your hope fully on the return of Christ. Now, one of the, one of the uh, benefits of, of preaching is that you meditate upon a text and the Holy Spirit will apply it to your own life. He will convict you of your own sin. So I've wrestled around with this whole idea of being sober-minded And I've I've thought and evaluated two things in my life. So, 
I'm going to share the love. Again, I'm going to pastorally, lovingly step on our toes. Are you drunk on entertainment? And that certainly is a pretty broad term. Movies, novels, television, but I really want to camp out on social media for just a moment. How cluttered, how fuzzy, how drunk are you on social or by social media? How much are you comparing yourself with what somebody else is doing? Oh my, look at all their fun. Oh look, look how many decorations. Are you drunk on social media such to the point that you are not clear thinking and therefore able to set your hope fully on the return of Christ? The other, the other thing that came to my mind was our stuff. You know, everything that we have demands and requires a degree of mental energy to manage it, to use it, to store it, to think about it. And we are a wealthy, wealthy people. I, I've had the benefit of traveling much of the globe. Nobody has as much stuff as we do. How cluttered is your mind by your stuff? How much, how much energy is your stuff demanding out of you and requiring of you? Is it to such a degree that you're unable to be sober-minded and therefore setting your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the return of Christ. As I close, I want to charge us with this. Our anchor, our hope, has to be set on Christ, who he is and his return. It's going to require us to prepare our minds and be sober-minded so that we're always attaching our anchor to him so that we are free to move and live and be in such a manner that we rightly represent him and glorify him. So my brother and my sister in Christ, I charge you, prepare your minds for action and be sober-minded and set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the return of Christ. Father, we thank you first and foremost for the grace that you have granted us through Christ. And we thank you that we have hope that he will return, he will come again, and all things will be set right. Father, we pray, could that even be today? Father, I ask that by the power of your Holy Spirit, you will convict each one of us where we are not prepared in our minds and where we are not sober-minded. Help us, Father, to trust in Christ and Christ alone for all things. We ask all this in his name. Amen.